with ultrasound technology, um, this is something that's really changed a lot over the past decade, I guess. Now you have these 3D ultrasounds, but parents now have the ability to, to, to see their child in the womb with, with great detail. I remember we had ultrasounds when, when our kids were being born, but they were not that great of pictures. It was one of the, I like to play tricks on people who come over and there'd be the picture on the refrigerator and tell me what you see. <laughs> and they would say, I think that's the head and maybe, no, that's the heel. Um, <laughs> you just, you couldn't make it out unless the doctor pointed it out. I mean, I could never tell what, I'm, what in the world I was looking at. But then I see these images today, and again, you, you see such clear pictures and images in 3D of these, of these babies in the womb. It's incredible. But the, chi- the child still isn't born yet. Child's not breathing. The child on its own, breathing air. The, you can't touch that soft skin. You can't hear those sweet little uh, coos of the baby or the shrill screams of the baby. Um, it, it's still it's still in the womb, and 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 you 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 can make out many of the, the baby's features, and you can feel its movements, but it's it's different. There, but but there is this wonderful life in that womb. This is a human being that's ready to be born into this world and about to be born. Well, in Acts chapter 1, what the passage J.K. read, I, I was thinking about this. We're, we're looking, in a sense, at an ultrasound image of the church. This is the, this is the church that's still in utero, but it's going to be born very soon. And 10 days from this point, actually. So the Spirit hasn't come yet, and that's true. And so the, the church hasn't been born. But there are some, and, and there are some things we can't quite see yet, but we can... We can see these very distinctive features of the church already in the womb, as it were. And so you have men and women gathered together like we are doing today. You have this unified praying, calling out to God. You have the scriptures being read and God speaking to his people through his word. You, you have him guiding them. And so all these things are in place in the womb and we get to see it in this little ultrasound image here in Acts chapter 1. The due date is fast approaching, again, only 10 days from this, from this time until this Christ-planned delivery date. Um, and, the, and final preparations are being made. And so very soon we'll hear the great physician say, it's a church, it's a church, and the church will be born and will rejoice. We'll be there in just a few weeks in Acts chapter 2. Well, this morning's text, though, as we, as we look at this ultrasound image, it's an interesting text, both in content and in context. What's, where it is and how it fits, and then what we see in these verses. You have this passage sandwiched between Christ's commission of the church that we looked at last week and then the birth of the church that we'll see in a couple weeks. We have it between the promise of the Holy Spirit and the arrival of of the spirit. And so in between here these in between these massive moments in history you have we have these very gory details of Judas's death. And and we have all this detail about his vacated apostolic office is filled and so it's it's just interesting as you as you see this it may kind of surprise you why. And so the natural question and the right question to ask is why in the world is this here? What's the purpose of this? Why include this material at this point in this narrative? What is this here for? That's something we should always be looking for when we read and study the scriptures. What is the intent? What is the authorial intent 
of this passage. And that's often helpful for us to, to understand even how it applies to us. And, and as I've been wrestling kind of with that question in mind all week, I, I think we get to the purpose of the passage right in the middle of, of this text. And in, right in the middle of the passage, there are these two Old Testament quotations. And, and Peter is proclaiming these, these, the, these prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled. And so in all this human confusion and chaos, again, Jesus has ascended. The disciples are alone. The Spirit hasn't come. And, and they're gathered, and they're not sure what to do, and they're trying to figure it out. So there's some confusion. There's a little bit of chaos. But into that, there's this divine clarity that just that, that shines in. God speaks. And, and what he says and that, that moment of divine clarity, I think, is, is what gives us the, the framing of this text and what this is here for. So you see it in verse 16. Look at it with me. Peter stands up to this group of 120 anxious uh, disciples trying to come to grips with what all this means as Christ has commissioned them. And now he's ascended to the Father and they're waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. What does this all mean? And he stands up and he says, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And in verse 20, you see these two quotes from the Psalms, one about Judah's demise, one about Judah's replacement. And in verse 21, you have two qualified men that are brought forth as, as possible replacements for Judas Iscariot. And and in verse 21, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That, 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 that expression in verse 16 and then in verse 21, he, the, the scripture had to be fulfilled. One of these men must become. It's the same, same word in the Greek language. It's a little word, day. And, and when you see that, what it speaks to is divine necessity. It's this certainty these things must, by divine design and decree, they must come to pass. That's, and to me, as I've been looking at this passage and studying how does this fit and what's being communicated, that's the flag that's flying over this entire passage. It's this unstoppability of God's mission and purpose. All that Jesus said, that all that we've been looking forward to as we finish out the Gospel of John and all the promises that Jesus made to His disciples, particularly in the upper room, they're, they're going to come to pass because God's purpose will not be thwarted. He is un, he, he is, he, he's unstoppable. And so you see God's sovereignty burning bright in the darkness of this, 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 this group of people that are kind of gathered in somewhat fear in, the, in a hostile city. And so they're, they're here, and His purposes must come to pass. His word must be fulfilled. What, what seemed like a setback with Judas, what seemed catastrophic, what seemed uh, like something that would just doom the mission right from the get-go is actually something that's part of God's purpose and must come to pass. The unstoppability of God in accomplishing His mission. That seems to be the, the real thrust of these verses. And we... And take great encouragement from that. Now I know that, that some Christians kind of choke a little bit on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And, and the most common struggles come when we're, we're trying to square this truth of a sovereign, uh, free, all-powerful God with, with things like prayer and evangelism or missions and suffering 
Those are, that's, where we, that's where the struggle tends to come. What is the point of praying if God is sovereign and He's going to do whatever He wills to do? What, why, why bother going to the ends of the earth with the gospel and if, if, he's, if He's sovereign over salvation? Won't He just save whoever He wants to save? And, and how can we affirm God's sovereign rule when such horrific things happen in the world, like a church shooting or a Vegas shooting and all these mass casualty events and, or diseases and cancer and, and, or abuse or a house fire or a natural disaster? How, how can we affirm God's rule and, and, and sovereign reign and unstoppability when, when so many times there just seems to be chaos? disaster. I'm not going to be directly answering all those questions, but I want you to see that this passage does deal with those struggles. And I trust that the Spirit will help you as you have have those wrestling. Just think of what we have in this passage that J.K. read a moment ago. We have prayer. We have mission. We have hardships. Suffering in this passage where the flag of God's sovereignty flies high and it flies free. And so... We need to see that today. So there's this wonderful encouragement for us, I think, too, that nothing can undermine the purposes of our unstoppable God. And I, I hope that we'll be helped by that today. Not a Judas, not difficult circumstances, not the devil himself. All right, first three points, simply, and these are not on the screen, but I, I think you can write these down without a problem here. First thing, our unstoppable God uses means to accomplish His mission. Our unstoppable God uses means to accomplish His mission. To say that God's in control, to say that His purposes won't be hindered, does not mean that we can or should become passive, that what we do has no impact. We just sit back and casually watch God's will be worked out in the world around us, and we're just kind of uh, bystanders, onlookers of this. That's not it. No, God accomplishes His sovereign purpose through means. And that's very clear in this passage. Look, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. It doesn't mean they're traveling on the Sabbath. He just His point is that it's very close. The Mount of Olives is just right there outside of the city, outside of the temple. And you can almost throw a rock uh, from the mountain and land it in the city. So it's not far. And so it's just saying a Sabbath day's journey little over, it would be shorter distance than a, a little over half a mile. So about 3,000 feet or less. So, so, so and, the, and when they had entered, verse 13, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, we're not sure if this is the same upper room as we know from the upper room discourse where Jesus spent that night, uh, on the night on which he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Um, but he spent that night with the disciples teaching them and praying for them and with them. Uh, If it was the same upper room, just consider the significance of that's where the bombshell was, was, the bomb was dropped on them, that that one of them would betray him. And here they are praying about seeking the Lord's help for his replacement. But regardless, same, same, same idea in this upper room, gathered together, different circumstances. But before, again, the 12 were gathered on the night, before he would be crucified. Now, 42 days later, they're gathered together on the day after he ascended back to heaven. So this, this things, things are different for them. These are changed people. 
by the resurrected Christ. And, and so they were gathered in this upper room. Large groups would normally meet in, in upper uh, floor rooms because on the lower levels they would have multiple, many walls to support the weight of those upper rooms. So there was a large group they would gather in these, in these upstairs rooms. And it would give them privacy, give them a place to talk and to pray together. And so this is, a, again, Luke tells us then who, who was present. And, and of, the ele- of, the, of the apostles, see, we note who's absent also. That stands out. But he says, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So you're doing the math. You think, okay, there's 11 names. 11 apostles. Who's absent? It's, of course, Judas Iscariot. So all of these remaining were were with one accord. And they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And from... Verse 15, we know that there were 120 followers uh, of Jesus in all who are in this upper room gathered together. And so, what I, but, the, but the point I want us to see in these, in these first verses is that God's, God is unstoppable in carrying out his mission, but he uses means. And look at some of the means that he's using to carry out his unstoppable purpose. First, he uses the means of unquestioning obedience. He's the means of unquestioning obedience. Why were they in Jerusalem in the first place? Why didn't they go back to Galilee for a few days after Jesus ascended and, 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 go, and go back home and catch up with their family? Why? Because Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem, to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. This wasn't a safe and easy thing to do for them. Jerusalem was a hostile city for anybody who was connected to Jesus. They just murdered Christ, and, 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 and they, they, they kind of all have, they've been marked, uh, men and women, by their association with Jesus. And so they're here in this very hostile place. It would have been safer for them to go out of the city, go out in the country, find a remote spot to just lay low and kind of hang out until the dust settles, until the Spirit comes, and then they could go back to Jerusalem. So that, that was... It was not safe. It wasn't easy. And, 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 I'm, and there's no question that their funds had to be running low by this point. And so why not spend the next t- 10 days earning money, go back to fishing, do some other work, get some money, save up for their next, their next mission trip. Um, but Jesus tells them to wait there in Jerusalem. So what do they do? They wait. And I just say... This connection for us is, yes, the Lord is sovereign in, in what he accomplishes even today, but he uses the means of our unquestioning obedience. Obedience to the Lord's commands is not always the seemingly easiest and safest way for us, but it is the best way, and, and it is the right way. And, and God uses the, the means of our trusting obedience to him to further his cause in this world. And again, it seems at times like there's got to be faster ways, there can be more efficient ways, there can be more effective ways, but we've got to trust the Lord and say, no, your way is right, and we, we believe you. We're not going to trust our assessment of, of the circumstances more than we're going to trust what you've commanded of us. So we've got we to gotta say, Lord, what you say we will do. And so that needs to be our our, our inclination. And God uses those means to accomplish His purpose. Secondly, God uses the means of our united and persistent praying. Of our united and persistent praying. What do they do while they waited? Play card games? 
binge watch some Netflix series or something like that. Of course, those weren't options. Verse 14, they devoted themselves to prayer. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 14, so Peter and the others, they're convinced that God's purpose must be accomplished. The scriptures have to be fulfilled. But that belief in the sovereign, free, unstoppable God, it fuels this bold, throne-charging, tenacious, united praying. It doesn't squelch it like we tend to think that God's sovereignty might. No, it's, it's this beautiful sight. You have the 11 remaining apostles of Jesus Christ who've been with Him from the beginning, who've walked with Jesus and seen Him when, when nobody else saw Him. They knew what He was like behind closed doors. They knew him what He was like when He was tired and when He was hungry. And yet they still, at this point, they call Him Lord and they pray to Him as God. And so these, these 11 remaining apostles who if anybody could find a flaw in Jesus, they could have seen it, but they didn't. And so they're there, and and then you have, the text says, the women, that's almost this official title. There was this group of these faithful female followers of Jesus Christ, and they're active in the early church, and they're even active in the church that's still in the womb here uh, in this upper room. So Mary Magdalene, no doubt, and and maybe Mary and Martha, and these these other women who are faithful in supporting and and, and part of Jesus' ministry team. And so I just say, sisters... Listen, women, you're to be part of the corporate praying life of the church. And, and, and so you, you have this, this transition. Just think of the, these, these women. We read that in kind of in passing. Just, just weeks before, their, their, their whole religion was summed up, and you stay here, and we'll be over here. You have the court of the women, this major separation. Now, again, they're gathered together. One room. The apostles and these women and and you see this transition to the church where men and women are together praying and prophesying in the assembly together. See that in 1 Corinthians 11. And Jesus' own mother, Mary, is there. And she's not pictured as just just kind of some sad mom or she's widowed at this point, this weepy widow in the corner. No, she is there as a worshiper of her son who is the son of God. And she is there and she's praying to Jesus Christ, her Lord. And, and his brothers are there, these men who were once scoffers of Jesus. They thought he'd lost his mind. And they, and they mocked him. And, but now they're, it seems that they're joining in, praying to their brother as their half-brother as Lord. And his own brother, James, he would, he would assume this leading role in the church. And he would be the one who pastored the church at, in Jerusalem which was the central church in, in, in who, which many, many, many in his flock suffered greatly, even to the point of death. Uh, his flock was ravaged by persecution right there in Jerusalem. But James, this one who would pastor this flock when the Spirit comes, he's there. And, and, and you have others. No, there's Lazarus there. We don't know, but those are not named. Or Nicodemus, remember Saul with him. Joseph of Arimathea and... Other disciples, those Emmaus disciples. I'm, I'm sure some of these were here. And this doesn't mean that there were only 120 disciples of Jesus left, but, but this is this is uh, some of them. And so, but again, what, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're united and they're praying. They're devoting themselves to this task. 
What are they praying for? We're not told. That doesn't really seem to be the point. Um, Maybe they're praising God for all that they've experienced with Jesus since the resurrection. Maybe they're praying for wisdom. This, this, the, the enormity of the Great Commission is just settling on them. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. Maybe they're, they're praying for the Spirit's uh, come that you promised the Holy Spirit and they would come in power and, and come, Spirit. And, and so, I, I don't know, but what I just want you to see, God uses, these un, the, God uses the means of our united, persistent praying to accomplish his unstoppable plans. And those are not contradictory. When God has sent revival to the church throughout the history of the church, what has he used? I think every time it's, it's got people coming together and praying. It's not that we're forcing the hand of God, but that he accomplishes what he wants to do in his people and in the world through the praying of his people. So Christ will build his church. The gospel will spread to the nations. His people will be protected and preserved. But we lay hold of those, uh, of those, those, uh, those by the means of prayer as a church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote often and said, spoke often about the necessity of prayer for the church. But just one quote, I know I've read this before, but he said the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its praying. So, the, so is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray, and if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. Third, I've got to accelerate. God uses the means of our dependent fellowship. Dependent fellowship. The, the first disciples, they didn't wait alone for the promised spirit. They waited together. There's a seeming sense of desperation as, as they're waiting in Jerusalem. We, we just need to be together. So they find a room that they can fit into and, they, and they're just there. And, they're, and, they're, and they're, 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 not, they're obeying, but they're not obeying alone. They're obeying together. They're, they're not praying alone. They're praying together. There's this marked sense of closeness and fellowship they're sharing life together as they wait and again what well, that's a distinctive feature of the early of the of church in the womb but it's also this is what characterizes the early church that's what characterizes the church today we spent the summer talking about this that the, the 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 christian life is to be a shared life this is god's design for the church your identity in christ is wedded to your connection your relationship to his body and you got to see that. And he uses the means of the gathering of his people uh, to accomplish his purposes. So the Holy Spirit will come guaranteed. He will empower the church. He will guide the church. He will ensure that the mission is accomplished. But that didn't mean the early disciples were passive. They were just idly, you know, killing time and looking at their watches and waiting and wondering. No, they're, they're actively obeying him and crying out to the Lord together. And so may, may God find in, in this flock unquestioning obedience to him, trusting obedience to Jesus, whatever he says. May he find this unified, persistent praying. May he find us desperate to, to be with one another, to seek the Lord together, draw near to one another, to rely upon one another as we aim to be more fully engaged in his unstoppable mission in this world. This is what we need. Second, Our unstoppable God is undeterred 
by apparent setbacks to his mission. Our unstoppable God is undeterred by apparent setbacks to his mission. This is verse 15 to 20. So in, in verse 15, Peter steps forward and he takes the initiative in the story. And not one of us is surprised by that because this has been his MO throughout um, the Gospels. We see he's been the most forceful personality among the disciples. So he steps up and, and we're not told what compels Peter to stand up and to address the group. But it seems that he spent, he and the others have spent these last 40 days with Jesus, and Jesus has been teaching them from the whole Old Testament about himself and how Scripture connects and promises that are fulfilled in him. And he and the others have no doubt been pouring over the Scriptures themselves and studying the Scripture over the, you know, working uh, on their own. And, and so that seems to be what's behind this appeal. Verse 15, though, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers is 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So he's saying, what matters right now is, is not what ideas we can come up with. The matters now is what the scriptures have said. Have said. And this must be fulfilled. And, 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 it's, and even as he refers to the scriptures, it's not, it's not about what David uh, that, that David wrote from his thoughts or from his own genius. No, what matters is that the Holy Spirit has spoken through David. And, he's, and he speaks, uh, that he's spoken beforehand concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, the, the way Peter words this Think about, I mean, again, we're so familiar with the story, but this just underscores the gravity and the heinousness of Judas's sin and betrayal. He says, Judas was numbered among us. Jesus' closest friends, this intimacy that Judas knew of seeing what nobody else could see and, and being behind closed doors with Jesus. He was, he was numbered among us. He was, he was allotted a share in Jesus' ministry. He received a, a portion of it, almost like an inheritance. He, he was given this stewardship. And it's the same Judas who was numbered among us, who was allotted this share, who, who led Jesus' enemies right to him. Oh, this, the sting. There's nothing hurts quite like betrayal. Um, this is what you look in the Psalms. This is one of David's greatest struggles. It's when he's been betrayed by a close friend. And, but this is betrayal on of infinite magnitude. And so his defection, Judas's defection, his suicide, it, it had to be so difficult for the disciples to get their minds around, what, what in the world is happening here? What, what has gone on? How could a man chosen by Christ to such a high privilege turn against him? How, had Jesus made a mistake in choosing Judas? Would, 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 why would God allow such a terrible thing to happen? Was the mission now derailed because of this? But Peter and the others, they found help in the Scriptures, again, that had to be fulfilled. In the next two verses, we have this digression by Luke, he's, he's telling us in gory details how Judas died. And again, this isn't part of Peter's address to the 120. This is Luke's addition later. But he says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a 
that is, field of blood. So you, you put this together with Matthew's account, and uh, which it's, some say, oh, they're, they're different, they can't be squared. But I think it's, it's pretty simple. Jesus, remember, Judas didn't keep the blood money. He threw it back at the priest's feet in the temple. Um, and then he went out and hanged himself. And so apparently either the rope broke or the tree branch snapped or something, and or his body just burst from just the decomposition. And, uh, you know, you can imagine. And so something, he, he, his, his bowels spill out on the ground. Then, then the priest apparently took, the, took that betrayal money that Judas threw back at the temple. And in his name, they went out and purchased the potter, potter's field where Judas hanged himself. And it became a graveyard and, and also became known as this blood field. And so that's what's you put the two together. I, I think it's pretty simple. But, but again, then back to Peter's appeal. He quotes these two verses from the Psalms. Psalm 69, 25, Psalm 109, verse 8, where it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now, clearly neither of these Psalms refer directly to Judas or refer to him by name. So how and why does Peter make this connection between these Psalms and what's happened and what is, needs to happen? Well, both of these are these royal psalms, and they're both imprecatory psalms. They're calling these imprecations, judgment. And so it's, it's these, in these kinds of psalms, the, the Messiah that's to come is, 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 is anticipated as this perfect king, this perfect sovereign. And, and so as they talk about the king of Israel, so they anticipate Christ. And, as, and, and not only that, as, as the enemies of the royal psalmist uh, are... are, are addressed in these psalms they they become the enemies of the messiah they're forecasting the enemies of the messiah so in that sense judas is predicted in these two psalms as acts 120 states and first in reference to judas's field second in reference to his replacement and what peter says these scriptures had to be fulfilled and this explained the past what happened with judas's death this explains what's happened what needs to happen with his replacement and it was, nece- it was necessary. Here's the big picture, though. And this is what I want you to see in these verses. God is sovereign even over the evil events and intents like Judas's betrayal. His plan is not hindered. Yet, yet in a way that does not make him at all responsible for Judas's sin. So Judas is fully responsible for his gross and wicked deeds, even though they are a necessary fulfillment of uh, David's prophecy in the scripture by the Holy Spirit's mouth. So may God's unstoppability and sovereignty, may, may that be of help to our troubled hearts when it seems like wickedness is winning. When it seems like um, evil has the upper hand in, in the world. When it seems like um, you know, suffering is just free and off the leash when it seems like the, the, the godless, the God's enemies just are gloating and boastful and proud. When it seems like that's the reality, we have this assurance that we, we look in the scriptures and we gaze at the face of God in the Bible and we don't see a God who's panicky and puzzled and, and, and confused and startled by what's happening. No, we see a God who's confident He's in control. That's the face that we behold as we look 
into the scriptures. And that's the face that we need to see when it seems like everything's unraveling. God, God's purposes remain unstoppable. It's, it's harder, it's not hard for us to believe in God's unstoppability and sovereignty when everything seems to be going just so well for us. It's, it's when things, things are going poorly, when things are going bad, and when we're slandered, when we're lied to, when we're betrayed, when we're hated, when we're abandoned, when we're abused, when we're, when we're hurt, when we're diseased. So in those moments, we need all the help we can get to believe that God's purposes are both good and unstoppable. But he gives us that help. Third and finally, and then we'll come and worship at the table. Our unstoppable God keeps the focus of his mission on his son. Our unstoppable God keeps the focus of his mission on his son. Verse 21. Now, so, so, one of the men who, who, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. And so then in verses 23 to 26, I'm just going to summarize them. You have two men who are brought forth as those that meet those two qualifications. There's this one guy who has three names, uh, and who, who this uh, uh, Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. And so I think God said, that's going to be confusing. Let's go with Matthias. But uh, no, no. But, but they, they, they pray. They bring these two men who are qualified. Both are... There's, seem to be equally qualified, and they pray to the Lord, and they cast lots. Again, these are means God uses to rule, to reign over this whole situation. But it's God who does the choosing. It's his, his unstoppability that's seen even in this. Now, I realize lot casting is not something that uh, we, uh, it's not how we operate today in decision making. This is not, we don't have uh, 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 some rocks with uh, a Sharpie there in our elder meetings and a big urn that we, you know, shake them up and, and when we come to make decisions. This hasn't been replaced either by drawing straws or flipping a coin or throwing darts or something like that. Um, this, this is the last time in Scripture we see this Old Testament practice uh, being carried out. Is, is right here. It's pre, pre, and you think of this transitional period. Moving into this church is about to be born, and so it, 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 it's replaced by the by the Holy Spirit within us and the Holy Scriptures that that God has given to guide us. That's how decisions become made from this point on. But the but the point of casting lots it wasn't so you know they could kind of force God to make a decision like let's let's write names on these rocks, put them in here, shake them up, and and we'll make God decide what to do. That's not what casting lots was about. Casting lots was they were submitting, they were saying, God, you are sovereign, you have chosen, you know what you're doing, and we just, we want you to make known to us the choice that you've already made. So it's not God, you've got to decide God, no, it's God's, it's, it's, it's them submitting to God's sovereign and wise plan and say, God, tell us. Tell us what you've chosen. And so that's what they do. They, they pray, they cast lots, and the, in verse 26, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now some commentators and preachers I know have heard, they jump all over Peter's case here and the apostles here. They, Peter's just being his old impulsive self. If he, was, if he would just been patient, 
not so hasty and just waited on the Holy Spirit, it would have been very clear that Paul was the guy to replace Judas, not Matthias. So we wouldn't have this awkwardness when we talk about 12 apostles, oh yeah, and Paul. And, you know, if he would have just been patient. That's, I don't think that's the point at all. There's nothing in the text that indicates any, that Peter and the others, any, what, they, what they did was wrong. They, 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 they take this action while waiting on the Lord in prayer. They base their action on the scriptures. They, they don't lobby for their personal candidates, their favorite candidates, like this is the, the one I want, the one that's got all the names or something like that. They submit the whole process through prayer to the Lord's sovereign choice. And they say, God, you, you make known your choice. And so, so, again, but set aside lot casting for a moment. Don't get tripped up by that. And I just want you to see, again, why, I want you to see why I stated my third point this way. And it was this. Our unstoppable God keeps the focus of his mission on his son. That the whole necessity of this replacement process has to do with securing another apostolic witness to Christ and his work. This is what, verse 22 again, look there with me. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's what matters. From their vantage point, yes, they're looking forward to the Spirit and what He's going to do. He's going to come in power and there's going to be signs and wonders and there are going to be these miraculous things that are, that are done. But the core of their ministry is to point backwards to Christ. What we need is someone who will look back and can say, yes, this is, what Jesus, this is who Jesus is and this is what He's done. That's the necessity. And so Christianity, it's rooted in time and space. It's rooted in history. It's, in, it's, a, it's the historical Jesus of, of Nazareth. That's what's important. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. They're not, they're not religious gurus. They're not creative inventors of Christianity. That's not their job. They were simply witnesses. They're truthfully telling what they've seen and what, they heard about, and what they've heard about Christ. And so, so as you think you, of early Christianity, and, and, and again, the church is about to be born, and we're going to see these incredible things. We're not going to be in Acts, uh, but for a few more weeks, we won't get to see all of this. But what you know of Acts, you see these wonderful signs and wonders and tongues, and all of this is happening. They're not graduating from the nitty-gritty stuff about Jesus and what he did in his work. They're not graduating to some higher spirituality with the Holy Ghost. It's not it. The Spirit's job is to point back to the work of the historical Jesus. And the focus is always going back to the Son, what he did, and the necessity of it. So we, we want to be a church, brothers and sisters. Uh, we, I hope that you want this. It's filled with God's Holy Spirit and there's, there's power from on high that we know and we experience and we want the reviving work of God's Spirit in, in our midst. And so we, we're praying for effectiveness in our witness. Some of the things we talked about last week and what the Spirit does and bringing deep conviction and, and expanding the gospel and changing us radically, transforming lives. But we, 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 we do want all of those things and that means we're going to be devoted to that upward work of prayer and seeking God together and it's going to be that, that upward work of worshiping Him. But, but it will also mean that we're devoting ourselves continually to that backward work of knowing Jesus and bearing witness to Him. That's... that's that's what the, God's mission 
his sovereign, unstoppable mission, it's always focused on Christ and what he's done. And this is why we come so often. This is why Jesus said, you come back and you remember me. Come back to the table. That's why the church has been given this ordinance to come and to eat bread and to drink the cup. And there are these tangible reminders of it, that our faith is not just it, it just uh, rootless, just kind of in, in ethereal land. No, it's rooted in real stuff, real events, real history. A real person who really walked this earth, who really died, and who was really risen from the dead, really ascended to the Father saw him go and he'll come back the same way he went this is this is this is the stuff and so peter himself he has these two realities in mind when he preaches 10 days later at pentecost and we're going to see this in a in a couple weeks but just look down in acts 2 if you still got your bible open acts 2 verse 22 men of israel hear these words he's kind of coming to the his the crux of his message jesus of nazareth Again, even the way he says that, it's not ethereal Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. It's all for plain, everybody to see, and you yourselves, as you yourselves know, this was not hidden. This wasn't just some secret. No, no, you, this was all very plain, very nitty-gritty, earthy stuff. Jesus, This Jesus though delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he goes on, he's rooting it in Scripture. These things had to come to pass. So this is where this is where we lie as well. We we have this unstoppability, unstoppability of a God who's on mission and will accomplish his purposes. And yet the focus is on the very real realness of a of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who came, was born, lived a perfect life, and died in our place and rose from the dead. And this is where our focus remains, and this is where our focus is regathered as we come to the table now. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you that as we gather at the table, we come and we, we worship this you who are our unstoppable, sovereign, overcoming God. Your purposes will not, cannot be thwarted. And yet we also are reminded, God, in this, that that um, transcendent truth is not disconnected from the very imminent reality that, that Jesus, you, you entered into this world. You, the Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And you suffered. Uh, you were tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you lived this perfect, righteous life in every way that we couldn't. And you, yet you willingly laid down your life, died on the cross at the hands of evil men, but even that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet you could not be held by the pangs of death. You rose again, and because of the fact that you live, we have the promise that if we trust in you, we can have life in your name. 
So we thank you for these glorious realities, glorious truths. Help us as we come to the table for those, the, the, the roots of these realities to go deep, deep, deep in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.